I gave a talk last night on core concepts of Buddhist practice, and I thought, well, I don't want to give that talk again. So I quickly wrote <coughs> another talk. Um, these glasses help me see you, but they don't help me read. Kind of fucked situation. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, I don't need to look at that. Um, I'll just do this by, as I do all my talks anyway, by rambling. So um, there's two kinds of uh, isolation. Um, there's the physical solitude or being separated from others, um, which is what happens when we are in an environment where there are not other people. And um, the second kind of isolation I'll refer to is often as loneliness. Um, and this kind of isolation is not a physical separation, not a solitary confinement. It's actually a kind of isolation that's born from a worldview where we believe that other people don't get us that our feelings, our emotional states, our in inner experience is so unique and different that uh, we feel um, very much uh, unique, separate, different from other people. And so we can we cannot be in solitude when we're around other people, but we can be alone or feel isolated around other people. Um, it's a kind of isolation, or the, the spiritual aloneness is um, often, and I'll go into what causes it, but it's often results in a mind state where we fear disclosing our inner experience to others. We don't feel safe sharing what we feel. So when we're around other people, at most we can offer superficial, shallow answers. When asked how we're doing, we might abruptly say fine, even though we might be quite sad, suffering, feeling deeply alone, feeling confused and wounded by life or relationships. Um, Relationships are the key. Uh, all the great uh, psychologists from the 20th century pretty much place the uh, emotional mind states as the result of our early childhood relationships. And this is no surprise. So what creates this uh, talking about... Um, Spiritual, which is, I'm going to be talking mostly about spiritual aloneness, the feeling that of uh, being unique, of uh, being, of uh, uh, feeling different from others, that we cannot be understood, or those times when we feel that there's something about, about our experience that others can't relate to, and that keeps us from being, of risking real deep emotional connection with others, where we talk about our experience in a really meaningful way. Um, 
Now, before I say, before I go into the causes, the Buddha was all in favor at times of physical solitude. In fact, uh, the teachings on uh, mindfulness, the development of, of uh, sati as a key tool for developing awareness of the body and breath and feelings, the Buddha suggested doing that practice alone in an isolated environment. So there are spiritual reasons at times to seek solitude. But that solitude is not weighed down by thoughts of, oh, I'm unique, I'm alone, nobody will understand why I'm doing this. When monks go off in isolation, they don't experience what arises in them as particularly unique or only theirs. They assume, healthily assume, that whatever they experience is quite universal. That's why the Buddha's core teachings, he always calls, um, the, he always addresses the mind as a universal experience. He teaches us that what we experience at its core is not ours, but is shared by others. So when we know this, we don't feel alone. But the more we fall into the belief or the worldview that there's something internal, our emotions, our feelings, or our personal experience, or our urges, our sexual impulses, something about us, if we believe, makes us completely different or beyond recognition or beyond empathy from others, then what we'll do is we will relate to these um, arising feelings, memories, uh, emotional states with a kind of dread because these are the things that make us feel uh, different or unique. So what makes us become so guarded and feel so alone even when we're surrounded by others? Well, in my work with, um, I do a lot of one-on-one work, probably, oh, at least 20, hour, 20 people a week, 20 hours a week at the very least, um, uh, is spent doing that one-on-one work um, through volunteer work and other uh, kinds of counseling. And so um, some of the experiences I've had is that um, the first is that many of us have, a, a, I mean virtually all of us to some degree, have fear of abandonment. At some point early on in life, uh, when we were uh, taken care of early on in life, we all feel very much in the orbit of our parents. And then there can be experiences where, as children, we have feelings or emotional states or needs that our parents aren't too happy about. And they'll pull away or reject or they won't be supportive. And so what happens is that we... Um, develop strategies as we grow up to conceal the emotions that we think will not be well met by our by people that are important to us. So in relationships, we can, even with close friends or with sexual partners or with um, sexual partners, Jesus, that sounds so clinical. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, with our... Uh, I don't know, significant others? What do people say? Uh, Lovers. (laughs) Uh, 
Blame anything silly I say on Craig, okay? So, <laughs> I love us. Yeah, like that. We, uh, we don't... <laughs> We don't, uh, we don't uh, feel safe sharing, even with people that, should, that one would think would be very close. So we can, we, sometimes we feel uh, permitted to talk about the thing, like the emotions that are expected, like, uh, oh, I'm so jazzed. Do people say jazz? No, they don't. <laughs> Craig just bursting into near tears. Hey, I'm so... Uh, so psyched, so stoked. What do people say for crying out like, loud? I don't know. I'm psyched by my new job. Whatever the fuck somebody would say, we we expect that. So it's, it involves no risk. But suppose we are in a new relationship, and the feeling is not only excitement but fear, feeling of being taken over by the other, fears of uh, abandonment. So those are the less uh, permissible ones, and very often we refrain. Sometimes we can fall into the habit of just being caretakers for all our friends, always being the one that people come to with their needs, their, their uh, emotional difficulties, but we just listen but don't share, take the risk of opening up on our own. Uh, uh, and sometimes we can seek objects or work or or substitutes for other meaningful relationships. Um, so that's one strategy. Another strategy that the great Winnicott uh, wrote about is called the false self, where uh, instead of revealing our true authentic feelings, we'll create little performances of what people want to see. We'll try to become really successful or really present ourselves as really together look at me i always i'm always in control i'm self uh regulating i i can handle my shit don't worry about me and that false self we can attach to and because it's the thing that our parents loved oh i love sarah johnny because they're always together they have it going on you know so we learn to withhold anything that that complicates this false self. Um, sometimes people become narcissistic and they really believe their false self is great. Yeah, I'm always successful. I'm really talented. And they surround themselves with people who fuel these false selves and blow them up like balloons. Sometimes we have people who are deeply impulsive and um, mistake sex for intimacy, or mistake, uh, laugh. <laughs> okay, so, uh, uh, so we mistake sex for intimacy, which, by the way, it's not. They're not the same thing. They, Sex can be something that glues an intimate relationship or can be an expression of it, but intimacy is the capability of being open with our feelings around another, sharing or you know, being vulnerable. Uh, sex is something that simply can be an example of that, but is not intimacy at the core in and of itself. But it can feel like it because during sex we're touching, we're looking at each other, we're in proximity, it feels like there's some kind of risk going on so people can mistake it. And people very often 
go into performances when they're having sex. I was talking with a friend who was telling me about um, a woman that uh, he met on these popular online dating. What are the popular online dating <laughs> things, Craig? <laughs> okay, Cupid. Okay, Cupid. All right. So he met her on there. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But anyway, he, he met her on there, and he said that when they were having sex, she made sounds of a porn star that she had basically went in. She was talking normally, and then when they started having sex, she just started going on into this kind of performance. And he realized it was a way of like of her not being completely open or honest. She had to, during even that amount of vulnerability, she had to go into a false self-performance. So, um, and um, finally, perhaps the, the greatest way we avoid being, we can create an isolating experience for ourselves is what's known as the repetition compulsion, where we constantly go back again and again and again to the same people who are wounding us and abandoning us because they remind us of our, of our, uh, the caretakers that abandon us earlier on in life. So, you know, we might have a, a mother or a father who was cold and uh, didn't return our requests for attention. And so rather than uh, opening up to other people, we keep going back and back and again and again to people who have the same qualities of narcissism or... Um, uh, rejection. So we can, we can fall into these patterns that leave us very isolated and alone, whether they're based on constructing false selves, whether they're based on uh, repetition compulsions, whether they're based on just uh, impulsive behaviors that mask as deep, meaningful relationships. But all of us eventually, uh, hopefully, uh, get to a point where these strategies stop working and there's a real sense of suffering or pain. And I say that's a good thing because without, um, without a degree of depression or sadness or suffering, none of us would ever leave the strategies that we evoke or develop to avoid abandonment or rejection in our life. If we didn't, we'd stay in these strategies. We can continually present false performances, we'd constantly say, I'm fine, we'd constantly keep people at arm's length, but eventually there's got to be some crack in the wall where we feel uh, really deeply isolated, despairing, alone, and because of the isolation, the thoughts become more and more and more dysphoric. So, for example, um, uh, I've, over the course of time, heard people who've ha who shared with me um, what they consider to be their darkest secrets. And invariably, each of them are, each of these secrets are never dark. They're always very human foibles, times where people stole $20 from their parents or, or you know, or maybe they shot up a drug, or maybe they, uh, uh, they had a sexual relationship that they're ashamed of, or something. But they're very human experiences, but because we don't feel the permission to reach out and acknowledge them, we, they become more and more and more symbols of something um, horrendously dark about us. 
Because the more we don't acknowledge and share, the more these these hidden, concealed, compartmentalized experiences just take on these these repressed energies that become monstrous. And eventually we forget even the experiences that we're, we don't allow ourselves to express. And just the feeling of there's something wrong, unique, bad, different about me can be in place. Or there can just be that fear of abandonment which is so strong that we don't have permission to share our feelings with others. This is why the Buddha said over and over and over again, especially to Ananda, that uh, the key to spiritual practice is once we get to a place where we are willing to uh, find a spiritual community, it's not just to come here and meditate and listen to you know some weird-looking guy uh, talk about you know Buddhism and psychology, but is to actually reach out and form meaningful connections with the people you meet, where you can um, open. We can take risks. So how do we do that? Um, very often we have groups like on Thursday night where we have round robin sharing and it, it, it creates a forum where we can go up to other people um, and we can, uh, uh, after they share something that we relate to, we can talk to them and use that as a bridge. Um, we have to give up the tendencies to go back and again and again to the hardware store for orange juice, you've heard that saying going back to people who are rejecting, constantly seeking love from the, the same places that don't give us, give it to us. Eventually, resilience is born of taking that risk to, to tell a, another friend or someone to risk not saying, I'm fine, when asked, but to say, yeah, you know, this time of year makes me feel really lonely and isolated, and I... Or the holidays, they don't make me feel particularly buoyant or joyous. I actually experience family gatherings as really difficult and, and painful, and I don't feel the permission to say that. Or whatever we're not uh, allowing ourselves to express. So um, it's important to build intimacy incrementally, which means... Um, if we only have one or two close friends and they're not here with us and we want and we need to develop a wider support network, if we immediately jump in and just go directly to our most difficult experience, we're sort of asking for a re-traumatization or re, you know, sometimes if we overload people, uh, we can be setting ourselves up. So it's important to develop a kind of gradual strategy for um, presenting our, the, uh, the, the feelings, the emotional content that, is, um, that we've been withholding or not disclosing. So I, I for the sake of tonight, I've, I've sort of separated into four levels of intimacy. This is by no means any, uh, I haven't read this anywhere, I've sort of just in my own practice with people have noticed this is the case. The first level is when we're, is just sharing 
about events that we haven't told other people. So if there, we have a sick parent, or if there's some stress at work, or if we're feeling stresses with a roommate, or if we're feeling um, uh, tension in our lives, just express an event that's going on. That's the first level. Um, the second level is to express the sort of normal emotions that one would express. So if, you're, if we're worried about a parent, then we could say, and I'm concerned, or there's a level of fear or a level of worry that I'm experiencing. The third level of intimacy requires time, and you don't, we won't do it the first couple of times we have coffee with someone. We might just stick with the first two, but eventually we might go into the emotions that are not going to be that easy to acknowledge, and that other people don't particularly feel that easy hearing. So, for example, um, that what I was saying earlier, I'm in a new relationship and I'm feeling a desire to flee because I'm feeling crowded out of my life and I, I, I don't know what's a good level of balance. That kind of revealing and disclosing sometimes can require a kind of incremental building up to. If we go too quickly into that, people might say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, and in that voice, they'll do it. And uh, <laughs> so we'll... We'll, we'll, by taking too great a, a leap into it, then we, we risk that a kind of, once again, a kind of emotional abandonment where people don't mirror our emotions and we feel alone, we feel rejected. So it's important to build it up. Um, and it's important to do it mutually. And when we share these things, uh, I like to pause and take in people's... Uh, um, Facial expressions, that's really key. Um, some uh, of the great psychologists have noted that uh, what we need most of all is not somebody saying to us, oh, um, I understand that, or I've been through that too, which is normalizing, and normalizing makes the experience feel less unique, and that's important. But even more, we need emotional mirroring, which is done through glances, facial expressions, body language, a sense of mirroring back our emotions to us. When, we, when the right hemisphere of the brain sees that, that's when we really feel safe and we feel the ability to take even more risks of reaching out. So it becomes a mutually enforce, reinforcing thing where I take a risk and then you feel permitted to take an emotional risk and express to me how you're feeling. And then finally, um, the, the biggest, the fourth level of, of uh, true intimate uh, sharing that cuts away at our feelings of aloneness in the world is when we actually allow ourselves to become emotional in front of another person. And that's the hardest, you know, allowing ourselves to cry, to have that wavering in the voice, to have a feeling of, of uh, just to physically present an emotion without sucking it back or, or walling ourselves up or, or shutting it down. And that takes a lot of practice. And when we get there, we've really truly cemented a spiritual relationship with another. And when we get there, that feeling of being alone in the universe begins to dissipate. These feelings of not 
of not allowing ourselves to emotionally or connect on a deeper level are what makes us feel really that most acute sense of, of um, spiritual isolation. What helps in this practice is reflecting on, I said, as I said earlier, the universal, universal quality of experience. Everything we experience on an emotional level um, is the same. There's only something like uh, the great Paul Ekman, who's a, a sociologist, did social, uh, went around the world and studied different emotions of different cultures, and he said, there's only seven fucking emotions. <laughs> I mean, you know, shock, anger, whatever. I don't know what the fuck they were, but he just, there's only seven of them, right? So we're all working from the same seven-color palette. Right, so the details of what we're, the details of our life, you know, oh, I hate my job, or I hate this, or I hate that. The details might be different, but the emotion in there, the anger, the fear, the sadness, the loneliness, the 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 shock, or whatever the seven are or nine, you know, everybody can relate to. So the more we focus on, don't worry when we share about revealing the whole story or getting trapped in the details, the more we focus on, you know, something happened at work and I'm feeling really, really um, unhappy and vulnerable there and I no longer feel like it's a place I want to go to. And just sharing that, even though it's not loaded down with all of the story, just sharing the, 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 um, the feelings involved, um, that is enough to break through that sense of being alone. And when other people say, yeah, I know that. I know that feeling. That, that feeling of, of, of a place that was safe no longer feels safe or a relationship that we relied on is no longer there. I know that feeling. Then when we work with this material, we don't relate to it as just ours. And then we can talk and open up to others and we can actually... We can we can relate to life not as like a personal challenge that we're alone in, but we can understand that all of the the sufferings that we face, uh, old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, all the ones that the Buddha said are going to happen, we no longer take any of them personally. We know that all these things happen to everyone, and that makes it easier. And that makes us less alone. And when we're less alone, we don't suffer as much. And that's the point of our spiritual practice. So I hope there was something in there that was worth listening to. And now I'm going to turn on.